Good morning, church. Great to see you. Like the hat? This is, listen, this is Union Chapel merchandise right here. It's got, we got the logo on the front. We got the name on the back. It's a fitted hat with this flex fit. Of course, I have a large, extra large, uh, fatter head, but um, you can get one of these. We have a, we have a merch, merchandise page now off the webpage, so you can go there. We've got, you can, there's a QR code with a little display out in the cafe. You can check that out. There is no markup on this stuff, so the price is what we've actually paid for it. So we just, we just want you to represent. You can get different colors. It's, uh, it's great. And, you know, if, if I, I could wear it like this today, you know, it's got Union Chapel there. You can still see my face. It's one of the, one of the rules. You don't wear a hat when you preach because, you know, now you can't see my face. And so maybe you prefer it that way. <laughs> Keep the hat on. So check those out. Those are, those are pretty great. Um, welcome to the story, chapter 8. Aren't we having a great time? Isn't this fun? Going through the Bible. Oh, by the way, we were going to give away a new Ford Bronco to anyone sitting on the front row in that section today. And uh, if you're there just before I start speaking, that's when you qualify. Sorry. Yeah. Ford Broncos are nice too, aren't they? So... Maybe next time. I hope you've uh, caught up. This is chapter 8. We're in the period of the judges now, and we'll talk about that a little bit today. We have been following the story from creation where we learned God's original design and intent for the world, this vision of God for his relationship with us. God wishes to spend eternity with us in loving community. And when Adam and Eve rejected that vision... God took up another, another strategy for fulfilling that ultimate vision, which was start a nation. And, and through that nation, the whole world will be blessed. And we will all ultimately come to that loving community that God envisions for us. So we started in paradise. The nation of Israel is part of the story. Then the life of Jesus, the life of the church, those who follow Jesus in the world, and back to paradise, a place called heaven. And God is going to deliver us there because his vision will come to pass. So we've talked about these amazing characters, starting with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. You remember Jacob just about lost his family, had to go to Egypt to avoid the famine and avoid death. And remember, God has now positioned one of the sons of Jacob, Joseph, is there to preserve the nation. Then 400 years later, as this nation has grown to a couple of million people, God raises up a deliverer called Moses, and then uh, 400 years after that, God raises up this, uh, this amazing period called the Judges. Joshua has now entered the land of Canaan and conquered these, these, these areas, and now we come to the period of the Judges. Joshua, our hero from last week, who was strong and courageous with great conviction, he has now passed from the scene And we come into 400 years now where God raises up 12 different men and one woman to judge over Israel. And we'll be talking about that today. I found this uh, humorous list. This is from a woman who taught in a Christian school for years with children. And if you're not paying attention, you can just be close to the actual story but miss it slightly. For example, some of the some of the answers that occurred on the tests that she gave to children over the years in this uh, Christian school 
was Moses died before he ever reached Canada, was the answer that was listed. Of course, Canaan is what we're looking for there. Then Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jeritol. <laughs> Sounds very similar, but we're looking for Jericho there, of course. The seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Now, that's close, but that's way off, actually, as it turns out. The Egyptians were all drowned in the desert, and afterwards Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. So you can see why those words would be chosen, but not quite right. Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraction. And then Christians only have one spouse, this is called monotony. <laughs> that usually gets nervous laughter. So God's looking for a few good men, a few good women, if you will. The Bible says that the nation of Israel followed God faithfully throughout the life of Joshua and the elders who succeeded him. And then they enter into this pattern where they where they fail, they rebel, they're not following God. Let me tell you what happened. This is from the story, page 103, Judges chapter 2. Look on the screen with me. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for them in Israel. Now, this is a, this is a very frightening verse of Scripture. I hope that it is immediately sobering for you to hear it. It shows how important it is for us to pass our spiritual faith on to the next generation. But after Joshua and the elders who were with him passed from the scene, now we have a new generation, another generation, and the Bible reports that they knew, they knew not the Lord nor what the Lord had done for them. And you have to pause and ask, how is that even possible? How could you be so neglectful how could you miss something so vitally important? You've heard me say many times that there are two primary things that God expects of us through the course of our lives as Christian traveling this world. One is to keep the faith. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, look, I ran the race, I finished the course, I kept the faith. And when you hear that from the Apostle, you think, well, yeah, okay, you're the Apostle Paul, of course you keep the faith, but no, no, it's not that easy. The longer you live for Jesus, the more you realize, hey, it's something when you keep the faith because life will knock the faith out of you. And so to get to a place where you can say, I've kept the faith, that's a strong and bold place and that should be the objective of every person. I kept the faith. And there's another mandate, not only to keep the faith for all of us, but also to pass on the faith. So we have this mandate from God to keep faithful and also to establish faith foundations in the generations that come behind us. You've heard me say this many times, that if I fail in pastoral leadership, I'm going to fail trying to reach the next generation, not getting stuck on whatever generation we're in. I love it when people now say to me, you know, you're a rather old pastor, but you still have a relatively young congregation. Well, that's what we were shooting for. That's what we're going for. When I was 26 years old and started pastoring this church, I offended old people the first Sunday. 
I have like a gift to offend people who are old. It's like, no one could offend old people as, as frequently and consistently as I have over the years without divine help. It must be a gift of God. I'm constantly in trouble with old people. And then I got into my 20s. I got into my 30s. I offended old people. I got into my 40s, still offending old people. I got in my 50s, now my 60s. And I offend old people on a regular basis. We have this great cast of leadership personnel on our staff here. Amanda Willis is our director of our children's ministry, and Kenzie Harris directs our 456 ministry, and Christopher Glotzbach is our junior senior high director right now. These three are just amazing. They're great young leaders. And some people say, oh, gosh, they're kind of young, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're all in their mid-20s, all three of them. That's by design. We're not only reaching the next generation, we're training the next generation of leaders. That's what you do. That's, that's, our, that's the move. That's what God expects. Here's an example from the time of the judges where an entire generation of people dropped the ball and kicked it, kicked it around for a whole generation. And so their children did not know the Lord, nor what the Lord had done for them. This is a violation of trust. This is, this, this, is a, this is a terrible reflection of responsibility. And by the way, what we do here at Union Chapel with our younger generations is we offer them the, the foundations of faith based on a cooperation. It's not my primary responsibility to teach your children about Jesus. It's your primary responsibility to do that. I come alongside of you. We come alongside of you as parents and guardians of these children. And so what we do is we do together in a partnership, in a cooperation. That's how it works. Years ago, we were sitting at the dinner table with our two sons. Our oldest son at the time was about 12 years old. And someone at the table said, can you name all 66 books of the Bible? And everyone turned and looked at me. And I, I went, mm, I, I, think I, could, I think I could probably get through it. The minor prophets is where, where the challenge is uh, with that list. Uh, and, and so that takes extra, extra effort to memorize Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. I got those 12 minor guys down. And the rest of it, you can fill in the blanks pretty easily. And so Aaron, our 12-year-old, he goes, right, that's easy. And, he just, and then he just rips off the 66 books of the Bible. I said, that is amazing. That is remarkable. And then I realized, well, I didn't teach him that stuff. I wonder where he's getting that. And then I realized, he goes to church. Somebody in the children's department is actually helping my son understand the Bible. How good is that? So when I fail as a parent... Others are partnering with me to pick up the slack. And that's exactly what happens. My wife, Beth, sits on the front row over in this section at 8.30 in our 8.30 service every morning. She was here this morning, of course. And then I reported to that service, like I will to you, that this service at 10 and the next service at 11.30, she will be over in the children's, children's building and she'll be caring for children. She does that every week. She does it every week. And then she'll take a nap, and then this afternoon, when it comes about 5 o'clock, she'll get up and she'll come back to church because she serves with our junior-senior high ministry. 
Last week, she came back and served pizza at the, at the GLOW meeting. And that's what she does. She does it every week. Every week. Because that's what we do. That's what a cooperation looks like. That's what a co-op looks like. There is a, there is a tendency among the younger generations right now to, because of all kinds of cultural and social mores that are shifting a bit when it comes to parenting, that an attitude, and I'm not blaming anybody, I mean, it's just part of, it's part of the worldview that people are, are developing right now. It's not good, but it is true that people are growing in their attitude that suggests that someone else is responsible for taking care of my children. And that's a wrong assumption. You are responsible. That's why God gave your children parents, you, so you could take care of them and raise them. You know, children aren't like puppies. These are human beings made in the image and likeness of God, and they need the foundation of faith. Just while I'm poking at you right now, let me just say it this way. 20 years from now, it will not matter whatsoever if your child has good soccer skills. It won't matter but it will matter altogether matter that they have a foundation of faith to face into the world and to deal with the relationships and issues that they'll be confronted with. Yes, amen, pastor, you preach it. That's good preaching right there. It's true. It won't matter. So listen, in today's culture, parents have lost their mind. Folks, parents have gotten glazed over. They've, and it happens to Christian people too. If folks get, the, get this attitude that if, if my kid doesn't make the elite AAU uh, wrestling team, then his life will be ruined. No, it's not true. It is not true. It's not true. I promise you 20 years from now, he won't need to know how to wrestle. <laughs> but he'll, he'll, need to, he'll need to know how to call on God to save his marriage. He'll need to know how to call on God to raise his kids. He'll, he'll know how to need to call on God so that he can get through a difficult work environment because that's the real world. And parents need, need to come out of this hypnotic trance that they're in right now. You know, just everybody walking in lockstep in the wrong direction. I, I'm a little feisty about that, all right? <laughs> I'm scaring myself right now. I just, ooh. So we keep the faith and we pass on the faith. So here's the consequences. Look on the screen with me at this cycle that develops, this pattern that develops in the nation of Israel. Disobedience then leads to punishment, followed by repentance, which leads to deliverance. This cycle happened over and over and over again. Many, many times you would think folks need to wake up, but actually we all identify with this cycle, don't we? If we're honest, I identify with it. We rebel against God's best design and plan. We suffer consequences. We come to our senses and repent of our sins. God forgives us. And then we cycle back around. And so they suffered from this. They began to worship the Baals. These are just Canaanite gods, pagan gods, foreign gods that the Israelites were seduced by. These were gods that emphasized glut, such things as gluttony and drunkenness and ritual prostitution, infanticide, those kinds of things. There's nothing new under the sun. 
Uh, in, t- in today's vernacular, we just say, well, sex and money and power, you know, that, uh, those are the pitfalls. Let me remind you that an idol is a person, a thing, or an idea that usurps the place of God in your life, an idol. And so Israel began to follow these idols. So for 400 years, one by one, God raised up these judges, 12 in all, 11 men, one woman, men like Jephthah and Barak, and everybody remembers Samson, you know, he's one of the popular judges. He's this man-child with no impulse control who, who has superhuman strength. Uh, they like to talk about Samson down in the Sunday school because everybody learns about him. Today, I want to talk about two of these judges that I hope will encourage you. I want to encourage women and, and girls in the room within the sound of my voice today. And I want to encourage men who perceive themselves as just average. And what that means is I want to encourage everybody today. The first, one of the early judges was a woman named Deborah. Now, let me put this on the screen. First, Deborah was a woman of influence. Now, now this is unusual because she's a woman in a patriarchal culture. And so women taking this kind of Leadership was not common, and so she must have been an uncommon kind of woman with unusual influence. Look at Judges 4, the first few verses there. Now, Deborah, notice a prophet. Here's a woman. She's a prophet. That's unusual as well. She's a wife of a guy named Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. So here she is. She's a woman. She is a prophet. She's a wife. Likely she was a mother. We don't know that for sure, but, but she's married and she's leading. And when you think judge, uh, you think of someone sitting behind a big dais, you know, uh, presiding over civil or criminal acti- uh, activities in a courtroom. It, it was that, but it was also spiritual, military, political leadership. And so it was all rolled into one as they were called judges. Of course, now, if Deborah was alive today, uh, she would have a TV show weekdays in the afternoon, and she would go by the name of Judge Judy. And then we would, we would all know who she is. She was, she was this uncommon woman who God used in a powerful way. I love the story of the CEO and his wife who were traveling on the eastern seaboard. They stopped for gas, and he went in to pay for the gas. And when he came out, his wife was talking in a very animated fashion with the gas station attendant. And he thought, man, that's a little strange. And so she finally got in the car, and as they're driving away, he said, what was that all about? She said, well, I need to tell you that before you, in our relationship, I was engaged to that guy, and I have not seen him since. And we were just catching up a little bit. And it was a little uncomfortable for the husband CEO guy. And a few miles down the road, he finally just said kind of smugly, he said, well, you know, if you'd have married him, you'd be the wife of a gas station attendant. And she giggled and said, honey, you're so confused. She said, if I had married him, he'd be the CEO of a large company right now, and you'd be the one pumping gas. (laughs) Never underestimate the power of a woman. When I tell that story in my wife's presence, she just goes, because she knows. Here's another thing I wanted you to, to hear about Deborah. She had a close walk with the Lord. 
And that's why God gave her so much influence. Listen, women in the room, within the sound of my voice, girls, listen to me. If you believe God has called you to some great influence and leadership in your life through your one and only life in this world, then the key to fulfilling that leadership and influence is to get close to God. Get close to him. God has this meta narrative, this upper story that's going on. We know that he has this vision and he's going to start a nation to accomplish this vision, to be an intimate community with him forever. And he, through this, this nation and through the unique characters that he raises up in this nation, through whom he is going to reveal to the world the model of his love and devotion for us and ultimately the revelation of his own son into the world. And these unlikely characters coming and going through the story should give us encouragement, should give us hope because we are unlikely leaders as well. We are unlikely characters in the story of God. I love this verse in 2 Chronicles 16.9. I actually referred to it last week. I want to put it on the screen for you. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Isn't that a great verse? Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that wonderful? The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Can you, can you feel Jesus? Can you feel the Lord just scanning the peoples of the earth? Looking for what? Looking for people whose hearts are tuned to him, obedient to him. And what is the promise? So that he might show himself strong in the lives of those people. How great is that? How wonderful a promise is that? How inspiring is that? I, I lean on this verse because I believe if I, if I keep myself tuned into God and, and on the right track and within his loving boundaries in my life, that he'll show himself strong in my life. Man, I want that, don't you? I, I long for that. So that gives us now introduction to this second character I want you to know about today, and that's Gideon, one of the other judges. And this trend of God choosing someone unlikely shows up in a big way in the life of this guy named Gideon. Here's the first thing I want to say about him. I'll put this on the screen. Gideon was a man of courage. Now I say that because you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that about him right away. For many years, Israel had been struggling through a period of oppression. This was the consequence of their idolatry, part of that cycle. And there were tribal peoples in the region called the Midianites and the Amalekites, and they were ruthless. They were barbaric. They would intimidate the Hebrews. They would destroy their crops. They would steal their cattle. Uh, look on the screen at Judges chapter 6, verse 11. So the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, where his son Gideon, now watch this next phrase, watch this. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, you, you probably realize that you don't normally thrash your wheat with a wine press. Normally, wheat, wheat is separated from the chaff by outdoors where the wind is blowing. So you just you toss the wheat in the air and the chaff blows away from it. And you do that outdoors because you need 
the assistance of the wind. Gideon is doing it in a wine press. So he's doing it inside on a roof. And the reason that he's doing that is because he's afraid that the Midianites will see him and he knows he's not big enough, tough enough, strong enough, courageous enough, or anything else enough to fight off the Midianites and they'll just come and steal his stuff. And it's just disappointing. Just like when the lights go off every week. <laughs> so sad. Well, we got one left on. That's good. God bless you. A little light. <laughs> one faithful one. And yeah, now two. Be encouraged. Little lights. Pray for our batteries. That's what holds it all together when the lights go out. Once again, we don't know why this is happening. We've paid lots of professionals lots of money to tell us and no one can tell us. So maybe you're in the room today and you're a, an elect, electrical genius and you can tell us what to do next. So this, this is perfect because Gideon, Gideon was the weakest guy in the weakest family in the weakest tribe in the whole nation. He's just an average guy. He's just an average guy. And he knew that he, he was no match for the vigilante tactics of the Midianites. And so here's what else we learn about Gideon. Look, look at the screen. In the midst of the story, God is going to move Gideon from fear to trust. From fear to trust. I wonder how many people I'm talking to today who need to move from fear in your life to a level of trust. Maybe it's your marriage. You're frightened about the status of your marriage right now. Don't know if you're going to make it. Maybe you're single and you wonder if there's ever going to be a mate for you. Or maybe it's your vocation, your career. You're just not sure it's going to work out. Maybe it's about school, your education, whether you should start or whether you should go back to school. Gideon was not from the special tribe. He was the least likely candidate. He's just an average guy, maybe below average. And then look what happens again. Judges 6, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So here's an angel appears to this average guy saying to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I know exactly what happened to Gideon. When, he heard, when the angel said this to him, he, he went like this. Because he doesn't perceive himself as a mighty warrior, not in any way. It's a stretch. He's a farmer who's hunkered down in some winepress shed. So don't miss this. The angel of God is inspiring Gideon to become a mighty warrior. So God speaks this profound and inspiring words to him and to give him hope and to instill in him courage. God always sees inside of us the potential that we have, and that's what God will speak to. He sees us as he designed us to be. He sees us in, in, in our true self, our full expression of who he, who he made us to be. I love this story about Michelangelo, who, who was the sculptor of this magnificent statue of David, you know, young David after he's vanquished Goliath. And so Michelangelo has this image of, of David and he sculpts, he sculpts this thing. And, and the, the reigning pope, the Roman Catholic pope in the day, 
ask Michelangelo, how did you do this? And Michelangelo kind of chuckled and he said, it's simple. He said, I looked inside the stone and I just chipped away and cut away everything that didn't look like David. What a fascinating way to express it. And that's exactly how God sees us. He looks into every single one of us and he sees the potential that we have, which is always greater than any of us imagine for ourselves. And he sees the value there and he sees, he sees all of this, this opportunity. And what God does with our lives, if we'll allow and submit to it, is he will begin to chip away everything that doesn't look like Jesus. And suddenly... If you live for Jesus like that long enough, you begin to see the true you. You begin to see the best version of you. One of the men who were part of the team that helped fund Youth with a Mission, YWAM, uh, back in 1960, Lauren Cunningham and some of his cronies put this ministry together. And Youth with a Mission, maybe you're not familiar with it, but it is a global ministry today. Tens of thousands of young people, Youth with a Mission being trained and sent all over the world. 160 countries in the world now have representation with youth with a mission, YWAM. Amazing. And this guy who was part of the foundation of this amazing world-class, world-changing ministry, as a high school student, he's finishing high school, and he's just an average kid. He's, not, he's just average intelligence, doesn't have great grades. He's not on the honor roll. He isn't strong or athletic. He's not artistic. He's just a guy. He's a guy who loves Jesus. And he coined this phrase in prayer. Listen to this prayer. He began praying it when he was about 17 years old. He said, God, I want to live for you and serve you. So give me the jobs that nobody else wants to do. God, give me the jobs that nobody else wants to do. And he ends up in some God-forsaken corner of the world ministering to people, impoverished people that nobody else wants to minister to. And the rest is history. It's an amazing prayer, isn't it? What potential's in you, average guy? How could God use your life in more substantial ways, average person? I was just talking with friends this past week about my dad. My dad passed away about three years ago, and members of my family died, divided up different responsibilities. We had to relocate my mother to assisted living, so the house had to be prepared and had to be sold and all that stuff. So Beth and I got the job of preparing the house for sale. I would clean it up, Beth would market it and sell it. That, that was our side of the family duties, chores. And my mother, as I've mentioned, was very particular about her house. So the main house was pretty orderly and everything was in its place. And so it was fairly easy to, to identify and do the inventory and get, get all that stuff out of there. But I had to do the garage and the, and the room over the garage, this extra room. That was my dad's territory. And it was a mess. That was his space. It was, it was quite cluttered. And so, so it took days and days to go through all that stuff. 
And I opened up the closet door, which was this storage room underneath the staircase. So you can imagine that much space. It was completely packed full of these boxes all the way to, you could barely get the door open and shut. I mean, all the way to the ceiling. And I look at these boxes and I go, oh, gee, what is this? And it says Gideon's on the side. Now, my dad was a member of the Gideon's International. We're talking about Gideon's. Who are these guys? These are, these are businessmen in little clusters in every, virtually every community around the United States and various parts of the world who raise money and purchase Bibles to be distributed all over the world. Virtually everyone in this room has held in their hand a Gideon Bible in a hotel room or some kind of application like that. And so I pull one of these boxes out of this huge pile. There are thousands of these Bibles, and they're, they're little pocket New Testaments that are handed to fifth graders back when you could hand them to fifth graders in America, and college students. My dad lived 10 minutes from Purdue University in West Lafayette, and what my dad would do, my dad's just an average guy, average intelligence, average guy. So what he would do about every five or six weeks is he would take two of these boxes under his arms and he would drive over to Purdue University and get on the busiest crosswalk on the campus and he would stand there and hand New Testaments, pocket New Testaments to students until he ran out. Who does that? Who does that? Some guy that just goes, here I am, Lord. I, I'm, I can't do much, but I can do something. Some sharp, well-dressed young businessman walked up to me at my dad's funeral after the funeral. And he's in tears because my dad had influenced his life. He said, I just don't know what I'm going to do now. I said, yes, you do. You know what to do next. Come over to my house, pick up all these Bibles and start giving them to those students. That's what you do. Tell me you don't know what to do. I don't know what I'm going to do without your dad. Sure you do. Pass out some Bibles. I think I helped him. <laughs> so this, so this, is the, this is the way God works. This is how God wants to use you. Gideon now threatened. He's, he's now recognized as the, the God-appointed judge of Israel. And so the Midianites are gathering this army. And so Gideon gathers Israelites to fight, protect themselves. He got, he's got 32,000 warriors ready to go. And God says to him, that's way too many. If you go out with 32,000 and win the battle, you'll think you guys did it. And so in order to demonstrate that I'm the one who's given you the strength you need, he said, just ask I have your 32,000 warriors. How many of them are a little bit afraid of going into battle? He said, the ones that are afraid, just send them home. 22,000 of them went home. That's a bad moment. All right, anybody afraid here? Want to go home? Hey, where are you guys going? He <laughs> said, 22,000. He's got 10,000 left, and God says, that's too many. Send them over to the brook, to the river, and, and see how they drink. And he said, the guys that get down on all fours and put their mouth right directly to the water, send them home too. And the guys who cup the water in their hands, so they, they just reach down and cup the water and lap it like a dog, is what's in the text, drink it from their hand, keep those. So out of the 10,000 that are left, only 300 of them cup the water 
and drink from their hands. So he's got 300 guys against this army of thousands. It's a, it's a curious moment. And look at Judges chapter six again. The Lord answered, I will be with you and will strike down all the Midianites. I will be with you. Five words. Can you say them with me? I will be with you. Again, I will be with you. One more time. I will be with you. Five simple words. Virtually all of us have suffered from the voices that have filled our ears and hearts and minds over the years, sometimes from the accuser of the brethren himself, others from voices useful to the accuser of the brethren. Words like, it's too late for you. You messed up too much. No one will want you. It's never going to happen. You'll just fail again. You're never going to change. You'll always be alone. You failed as a mom. You're just like your dad. God doesn't love you anymore. It'll be like this forever. You've wasted too much time. You're on your own. You don't need any help. God's done giving you chances. Five words that come so quickly and so easily and pointedly by those voices in our life. Words that have been lies and robbed us of strength and courage. But I'm here today to give you five new words, five replacement words, words to replace all the other five word lies you've tended to believe in your life. Again, Judges 6.16, look at the screen. The Lord answered, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. So square your shoulders, lean into the greatness of the God we serve. He is so wonderful. He is so adequate. He is so sufficient in every way in your life. And he is the one to be strong in your life and promises to be with you. You can do it. You can have it. You can make it. God declares, as I was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Deborah and Gideon, I will be with you. Those unlikely characters, we fall right in place, just as unlikely. God was with them. God will be with us. Do you believe it? Here's one more verse, Romans 8, 31. Look at the screen. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Can you receive that today? Can you be encouraged? Can you receive that hope? Let's pray, if you will. Lord, I thank you uh, today for your word and, and how it illuminates and encourages. We pray, Lord, that in spite of our fears, because we have them, so did Gideon, so do I. We wonder about the resources. Do we have enough? We're going to make it. Gideon felt the same way. So do I. There are those of us today, Lord, who wonder if we've got what it takes. 
So did Gideon. So do I. But we believe today that you are with us. You are with us. I will be with you. I will be with you. And if you are with us, who can be against us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us?